0: Uh, Good morning again, my name is Matt, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to look at God's Word. Before we do that, let me extend a personal thank you to all those teachers. I have three reasons uh, to extend that to you, so thank you so much. Um, But now, if we'll all turn to Galatians chapter 3, 15 through 29, as we continue our sermon series on the book of Galatians, if you're going to use one of the Bibles that we have underneath the chairs in front of you, it's on page 1,153. Here now, as I read God's holy and inspired word, Paul writes, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established. So it is in this case, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves With Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we plead with you now to send your Holy Spirit to fill us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to awaken in us. Uh, a deeper sense of the glory of Christ. We pray that you would use this time to exalt him in our hearts and equip us to exalt him in this city and around the world. We pray that you would use this time to equip us to run with the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations for it is in Jesus name that we pray. Amen. So we're continuing our sermon series uh, titled Astonished. We've been looking at things from the book of Galatians now for several weeks. I believe this is the seventh installment. And one of the things that we have been really pounding away at over the last few weeks has been the doctrine of justification by faith. And that would be that we are forgiven of all of our sins and declared to be completely righteous in God's sight by faith, meaning we believe that And that's how we receive that declaration of righteousness. And that is opposed to, diametrically opposed to, earning some sort of righteous status by obeying the law or doing some sort of good works. Paul has been showing us reason after reason, argument after argument, to totally deconstruct the idea that our righteousness would come from ourselves. And this morning, we are looking at one of the strongest arguments that he puts forward for justification by faith as opposed to works righteousness. And here it is. Here's your gospel fact for this morning. Righteousness through obeying the law was never part of God's plan to save sinners. Never, ever, ever, ever. That's good news. Faith in Jesus Christ is our only hope. So let's look at that. We're going to do uh, four things this morning, talk about four things, uh, looking at the purpose of God's promise and then the purpose of God's law, the predicament of the human race, and the power of the gospel. Uh, If you would keep your Bibles open and look at the text as we move through, I think that will prove fruitful. So let's do that. Let's talk about the purpose of God's promise starting in 15 and 16. Go ahead and look there. He says, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Here it is, short and sweet. The promises of God. The promise of God is designed to point us to Christ. That is huge. Okay? God's promise, God's promises are designed to point us directly to Christ himself. Let's uh, look at how we understand this. First, notice that Paul talks about a human covenant. A human covenant is uh, it's the same Greek word that we would translate if we were going to use if we wanted to say a will. So someone's last will and testament. And he's saying in the same way that once you sign your will, it's a done deal that God's covenant of grace is also signed and a done deal. If you have your will and then you pass on, no one afterward can say, you know what, I really think we should probably do this and that with this man's estate. Nobody can say that. Nobody can add to it. Nobody can adjust it. And that's the example that he's using to show how solid and permanent... The covenant of grace is that we would be saved by grace. So uh, noticing that, then see how he is referring to Christ here in the following verse. In verse 16, when he talks about seed and seeds, what he's driving at here is that when God promised Abraham that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. He was pointing through Abraham to his descendant, to his great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, who would truly be the one to actually and truly bless all nations by his life, death, burial, and resurrection. So when Abraham believed God's promise, what he believed is that someone would come through his line that would bring redemption. It's kind of like this... um, I know some of us are Tim Tebow fans and, uh, you know, we haven't heard much about him lately. Like, what happened there? Where is he now? Anyway, uh, we, when when Tim Tebow got famous, we were excited because here's Tim Tebow. He's this uh, decent football player, but he's a Christian and he's uh, we just really were excited about him. We could say to Bob and Pamela Tebow, who are his parents, that uh, Bob and Pamela, through you football, will be blessed. See what I'm saying? Because their descendant, Did some good things for football. It's the same thing when God was promising Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. He wasn't saying Abraham would physically bless all nations. He was saying the one that will come from you will be the one to bless all nations. And so what we see is then is that all of God's promises center on Christ. They're all about Christ. They point us to Christ. He's the one that fulfills them. He's the one that they're about. He's the one who guarantees them to us. His life, death, and burial and resurrection is the, is the guarantee that it can be applied to us. They're all about Christ. You could say that God is a Christocentric promisor. A promisor is the person who's extending a promise. The promisee is the person who's receiving or believing that promise. And what we see here is God is a Christocentric promisor in the way that all of his promises are centered on Jesus. They're pointing right at him. And therefore, we need to be Christocentric promisees to receive God's promises. We receive them in and through Christ. He says this, Paul says the same thing. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And then he says, same verse, That is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So the purpose of the promise is to point us to Christ and what he would do for the Old Testament people and what he has done for us New Testament folk. So what about the law? If the purpose of God's promise is to point us to Christ, what is the purpose of the law? Guess what? Same thing. See, we think the purpose of the law is to point us to us and what we have to do. But Paul's showing us here the purpose of the law is to point us to Christ as well. So let's talk about this in two ways. I want to talk about what the law did not do real briefly and then what the law did. Here's what the law did not do It did not replace the promise as the way by which we would receive righteousness. Look at 17. 17, Paul says, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. So in other words, God did not say, uh, here are some promises. If you believe them, I will declare you righteous. And then 430 years later say, "Eh, forget about that. Here are some laws. If you obey them, I will declare you righteous. That's not what happened. When the law came, it did not set aside the covenant previously established Okay, so it did not replace believing the promises as the way by which we would receive righteousness by faith. Okay, so let's talk about what the law did do. Ultimately, the law is designed to reveal guilt and moral corruption and the need to be set free from both sin's penalty and sin's power, which... Points us directly to Christ. Look at verse 19. Paul says, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Then he talks about a mediator. Moses is that mediator. God gave the Ten Commandments, the law, the summary of the law to Moses, and he gave it to the people. But focusing on this line, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. That's huge. Now, if we were simply just to look at what Paul's writing here, uh, we'd have to sort of take a guess at what he's getting at. But fortunately, uh, there's a really good commentary on the book of Galatians called the book of Romans. And so we know from what Paul says in a, more, in, in a more extended way in the book of Romans what he's getting at here. What does it mean? The law was added because of transgressions. Number one, we could say that uh, he's pointing at the fact that the law reveals guilt And therefore, the need to be set free from the penalty of sin, which then causes them back then and us now to reach out for a Savior. Okay, So think about it this way. In one sense, we could say that the people of Israel had no idea how glorious and gracious and critical God's promise actually was. Because they didn't know how extremely guilty they really were. Simon Kistemacher, one of my favorite professors... Uh, who's now, I think, retiring from RTS, Uh, he says this, the law was given to man in addition to the promise in order to bring about within his heart and mind an awakened sense of guilt, a vague awareness of the fact that all is not right within him will not drive him to the Savior. So, in other words, without the law, we would not know how badly we really need our Savior. Without the law, they they had they wouldn't have realized how powerful and glorious and amazing God's promise of righteousness by faith truly was. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul says that if it weren't for the 10th commandment, which is thou shall not covet, he would have never known that coveting was was a sin. So this is a major, major facet of the law, that it reveals to us that we are guilty, that we need to be saved. And of course, then for the, uh, uh, the Israelites, this would have driven them to the promise, the promise of righteousness by faith. Because when we find out that we're guilty, we immediately reach for something. We know that we need to be right. We know we want to have a feeling of righteousness. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And if you remember, the two ways that human beings usually try to get to a point where they feel like they're right Number one is to find a bunch of rules and follow them and say, because I'm following these rules, I'm right. Or do away with the rules and make up your own rules and say that I know what's right for me and that makes me right. Either way, the whole pursuit is that sense of being right, which cannot come either by obeying the law or making up your own laws. And so what we're seeing here is the design of the law is not to to save us. It's to show us our guilt. It's to show us how desperately we need a savior. And think about this. God let the promise marinate for 430 years before he gave the law. It's like he wanted that to be pretty well ingrained into his people. Okay. So the, um, The the gloriousness of the promise is highlighted by uh, the law itself. So that's the first thing, to reveal guilt and the need to be set free from the penalty of sin. But that's not all. We could also say that Paul is referring here when he says that it was added because of transgressions, that he's talking about the fact, uh, the revelation of our moral corruption. That we need not only to be set free from the guilt of our sin, but also the power that sin has over us. In Romans 5, Paul is discussing how Adam's sin brought sin and misery into the world. Okay, and one of the things he says in chapter 5 is verse 20, and he's referring to the law, and he says, Now the law came to increase the trespass. So it's not necessarily that he's saying the law came in to make what Adam and Eve did even worse, more it's showing that. Through the law, we see the damage done to the human race by what Adam and Eve did. Making us completely unable to be righteous by the law, but also to be under the power of sin. And he goes on in Romans uh, 6 and 7 to relate it to slavery. He tells us that the, the, whoever we're obeying, whatever we're obeying, we are enslaved to that. And so when we sin, it is because we are in slavery and we need to be released from that. We need to be delivered from that slavery as well. John, uh, Jesus says the same thing in John 8, that if we are sinning, we are enslaved. We need to be set free. We need to be delivered from that. We are addicted to things. We're addicted to doing things that hurt ourselves and hurt our families and hurt the world. Now, um, give you an example, and it's a relatively benign one, but it makes the point on the whole scope of things, okay? Um, do you or do you not think that you have some sort of slavery to sin that Jesus needs to deliver you from? Here's how you know. You're walking down the street, minding your own business, There's a little sign in the grass that says keep off the grass and you can't help it but to kind of dance on that for a second and then keep on going. You had that little urge that pulled you in, okay? Not the worst thing in the world, but it's the principle of the thing. That fact that we are drawn to it. What is that? What is it that draws us into little things like that and then also the egregious things that we fall into? It's not that we're good people who mess up every once in a while. It is that we are under the power of sin. And completely under sin's power apart from Christ. And so uh, sometimes people don't like this as an analogy. But uh, two commentators that I was reading do. So I'm going to go ahead and use it. But what they were suggesting is that we really should see ourselves as addicts. uh, That we are addicted, in a sense, to sin. And what that's helpful with is this. If you think about a person who's addicted to uh, drugs or alcohol or something like that, uh, if they were to go ahead and do something that's a crime, and therefore now they've got to pay the penalty of their crime, they, even if they were delivered from that penalty, even if a judge said, okay, you can go free, they're still, they still have a big problem. They're still an addict. OK, and so that's the, another thing that the law is revealing to us, not only that we need to be saved from its penalty, but also from its power. When Adam and Eve sinned, they put the whole human race under the power of sin. So guilt is not our only problem. We also need to be delivered from the penalty or I'm sorry, the power of sin. And the law shows us both of those things. Now, here's one thing to keep in mind um, Paul's focus here is really on what we would call the the first use of the law. The Protestant reformers saw in Scripture three main uses of the law. First would be what we're talking about this morning, that the law would drive us to Christ. Uh, The second... Use of the law was to restrain sin in society to keep us from totally killing each other. And then also a third use would be to show us how to live as redeemed and beloved children of God. And so we're not addressing those other two, those second two, the second and third uses of the law as much this morning. What Paul is laser focused on is indeed that first use of the law. And so here's what we could and should say. The primary use of the law is not to save, but to send people like you and me, to the Savior, Jesus. And this really needs to influence how we handle the law. We cannot run around just saying, don't do this or you go to hell, don't do that or you go to hell, because that is not how it works. The law is not designed to get people to stop breaking the law so that they can earn their own righteousness. That's not the way, that's, not the, that's the whole point. Righteousness by obeying the law was never part of God's plan. Anytime we mention the law, we have to use it to point to the law keeper, Jesus Christ, who did what we could never do, obeyed the law and paid the debt we do not want to pay. Hell. The law, the primary use is not to save, but to send people like you and me and people all over this world to the Savior. And that's why Paul says in verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, because the law doesn't take the place of the promise. It magnifies the glory and the beauty of the promise and the content of that promise, Jesus Christ. So, understanding then that God's promises point us to Christ and God's law points us to the promises to Christ. Let's talk about the predicament of humanity. Look at verse 22. Paul says but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul is widening the scope here. He's wanting to make abundantly clear that the law was not simply designed to show God's people, the nation of Israel, that they were guilty and they were under the power of a slave master called sin. Uh, he was, uh, it's also designed to show the whole world. Everybody everywhere is a prisoner of sin, under the penalty of sin, under the power of sin, unless they are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is one of those things where... You know, I've had several conversations, I'm sure you have too, where somebody is referring to someone and we say something like, you know, they're not a believer, but they're a really good person. And the reason we do that is because we feel like we need to attribute to them some form of righteousness because we know deep down we know that everybody is lost without Christ. And so Paul is showing us that this is the predicament of the entire world, that faith in Christ is is the only way that we're going to be set free from both the penalty of sin, because when we believe in Christ, we receive his righteousness. We also receive the forgiveness of all of our sins and also the power of sin when we are following Christ, when we have received Christ by faith, he begins to give us power over that sin, which we'll talk about in a minute. But. Think about this. Look at verse 22. And this is, this is how we have to approach this lost and dying world. He says, So what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So you break that down. What has been promised? Justification. How is it given? Through faith. And therefore, who is it given to? People who believe. Period. It doesn't matter how good a person is. It doesn't matter how moral people are because that doesn't cut it. No one is good enough. They need righteousness by faith. And to take this even more, even further, Paul uh, refers to the law as a tutor, a guardian, a pedagogos in in Greek. Look at verses uh, 23 through 25. He says, but this faith that is in the finished work of Christ came uh, before this faith came we were held prisoners by the law locked up until faith should be revealed so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith now that this faith has come we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now, why the NIV chooses to not point out this one Greek word that shows up in, uh, in verse 24 and 25, I'm not sure. They're, they're trying to make sure you get the point here, which is great, but they, they leave out something that's really cool. And what it is, is this. In 24, when he says the law was put in charge, and in 25, when he says under the supervision of the law, he's using one Greek word in both places, and it's the Greek word pedagogos, which was uh, what a Wealthy, very wealthy person in the first century would uh, hire to raise their kids for them. Basically, you're like, where, where are those? Are those available? Um, but that's basically what uh, the, the the reference is: that a pedagogos would come in and for a very wealthy person, they would teach the child, they would guard the child, they would uh, correct the child, they would keep the child moving in the right direction toward adulthood. And so Paul is pointing out here, he's saying that's what the law is. The law has been leading us, guiding us, protecting us, helping us, moving us forward as we wait the day when the promised seed would come. And so when he says that we're no longer under the supervision of the law in 25, he's not saying the law doesn't matter anymore. He's not saying, woohoo, no more law. That's not what he's saying at all. He's simply saying that the law is no longer the guardian of God's people, the teacher of God's people, the corrector of God's people, and leading God's people. Now, Christ is. Christ, the promised one, is the one who leads us and guides us and protects us and keeps us moving in the direction that always sees him as glorious and the fulfillment of these promises. So when he says we're not under his supervision, he's not saying we're not under supervision. He's saying we're under supervision of the king who came to live and die for us. And so Jesus, what was his view of the law? He calls us to Perfect obedience. But what we see here is that Jesus use of the law is not saying do this or you will not be saved. He's using it as a way to transform us into somebody that is much more like him. Ultimately, think about it this way. The law uh, first shows us our guilt and then Christ is the, the content of the promises who shows us that the guilt is gone. We're forgiven. Our guilt and our shame that we carry is gone. Christ took it away. But that power, the power that sin has over us still remains in this life. And it is significantly. Obliterated by the power of the gospel, by Christ's supervision of us, leading of us, teaching of us, rebuking and correcting and training of us. He is making us like Him. He is setting us free from that power that sin has over us. That's gospel. That's good news. Because that means some of us who are really struggling with these things that we really, really want to stop doing, Christ delivers us from those things too. Not always as fast as we'd like him to. Not as fast as he did when he delivered us from the penalty. But it does happen. And we know that one day, when Christ returns, he will finish the job and we will be completely liberated from the power of sin. One day. But for now, Jesus is leading us out of slavery. Just like Moses led the Israelites out of slavery to Pharaoh, Jesus is leading us out of slavery to sin. That's good news. So let's talk about the power of the gospel. Uh, Power of the gospel. We see this in 26 through 29. Look at this. Uh, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed or have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor free, male nor female. For you are all one. In Christ Jesus, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I want you to think about this with me. I, um, I never knew what Paul was doing here until studying for this sermon series. And then when I saw it, I was just like, whoa. Why has Paul been pounding away at the doctrine of justification by faith? Here's what we need to realize. Uh, he wants to obliterate division in the church. And if you think about this, uh, all division in the world has to do with people thinking they're better than others. OK, I mean, that's just kind of how we end up dividing from one another and going to war with one another and treating each other horribly. It's sin as a result of thinking some people are better than others. And so here we go. We have the gospel is this amazing leveling of has amazing leveling effect. But I want you to think about this. When Paul began this long treatment of justification by faith. It was on the heels of a story about a time when he had to oppose Peter to his face because there was division. And so, Paul tells a story about division in Antioch and how the just the doctrine of justification by faith was the only thing that would reunite these two groups that didn't seem to want to hang out together. And so if that's the case in Antioch, why would Paul tell the story unless it was the case in Galatia? And if it's the case in Galatia, why would we not assume it's not the case in every church on the planet? Even this one. Now, do we have a lot of factions and division? I don't think so. But the reality is we are prone to divide. Because we are prone to think I'm better than you. You're worse than me. I do things right. You don't. And that divides and that makes us look like the world, not like the son and the father and the spirit. And so what Paul is doing here is showing us here that this, it, we, the, the gospel is the most amazing unifying principle because think about this. What is one of the most unifying principles out there in, in, in existence? A common enemy. Think back, where were you? September 11th, 2001, when airplanes crashed into the World Trade Center towers. Now, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you were. I don't care what's your job. I don't care what sins you've committed. That day, all Americans were locked arm against a, a single enemy. You remember that? Another recent taste uh, was the tragic bombings in Boston. And when those bombs went off, the entire city of Boston... And the entire country, really, for that matter, locked arm against a common enemy, the Sarnayev brothers. And so what we're seeing here when Paul says the whole world is a prisoner of sin, is he's identifying the true common enemy that is the reason there's any division in the world. There's any fighting, there's any hatred, there's any racism, there's any bigotry, there's any problems. And then he shows us here that in Christ, we are all one. Because we are no longer slaves to sin. We are sons of God. Male and female, sons of God. It's important that we see that. Guys, we have to deal with it too. We're also the bride of Christ. Okay, So there's a little uncomfortable thing we've got to deal with on both sides. But we are in Christ, God's children. And God's children, none of them have any of their own righteousness. They've all got to receive all of it from the King. And that levels the playing field, makes us see that there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no male or female, there's no slave or free, there's just us. And it unifies us. And let me tell you, we need to be united We need to be a united church that is united by the promises of God, by our faith in Christ, which shows us we've never earned anything in our lives. It's all been given of the grace of God because of the work of Christ and that unites us and gets us ready to work together and be on our mission to make disciples of all nations. We've got a lot of people in this city who believe they've got to earn their own righteousness. We need to give them the good news. We've got a lot of land out there which could be used to do all sorts of things that can bless people and meet their physical and felt needs. And we're going to need to be unified to do that. And that is why we always have and we always will pound away at the gospel and continue to show the glory of God in the gospel because the gospel is the only way that a church can be both united and ignited for mission. Amen. Are we united? Yes or no? Say it because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, in desperate need of your continued grace and we We need you to remind us that you have forgiven forgiven us of all of our sin. Um, Even the ones we will commit ten minutes from leaving this building paid in full. And then would you remind us that we are still influenced by the power of sin and we need our King Jesus to walk us out of that. And would you let this gospel, this glorious promise of your glorious Son, continue to level the playing field in this church that none of us would ever feel like we are better than another, but rather we are all one in Christ. And let that unification be the ignition for mission that our neighbors and the nations would hear this good news of righteousness by faith and they would repent and they would believe and they too would become part of this mission until the king has come home and we see his glorious face and he completes the work and makes us perfect and establishes the new heavens and new earth right under our feet and we live forever in eternity in his presence under his glory forever. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.